3 and 4. Paul says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, yea, that God be true, but every man a lie. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Without doing a whole bunch of overview, because we kind of did that last week. Um, remember Romans chapter 1, we were dealing with the Gentiles, and Paul goes through and shows how the Gentiles are guilty before God. Then in chapter 2, he goes through and shows how the Jews are guilty before God. And he left no, no stone unturned on those, did he? I mean, he dealt with everything. He dealt with every single sin that you could deal with, with the Gentiles, and he took went right to the Jews and showed how they were doing all the same sins, plus they had the word of God. And then last week what we saw, if you remember, from verses 1 and 2, it says, What advantage then have the Jew? And what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. So not only did they do the same sins that, that the Gentiles did, but they also had the oracles of God. They had the word of God. They had the, the testimony of God. They had the, the signs and symbols of God, all pointing to the Messiah. And yet they still acted just like the Gentiles did. And not only that, they were if you will, standing in a pulpit and preaching against the Gentiles and their sins, but they were doing the same thing and acting as though they weren't doing any of them. They were the height of hypocrites. And then we get right here, and Paul shows, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? So the first point is God unfaithful. the question now that Paul has is if the Jews who had an advantage in having the oracles of God were unfaithful or unbelieving, does this make the faithfulness of God? Does this make the faithfulness of God of no effect, right? If the Jews whom he gave his word to did not believe, did all of a sudden the promise of God become void? If the Jews broke the covenant, does God still keep the covenant? That's the question that Paul is kind of asking here. Adam Clark in his commentary says on this part, he says, What then if some did not believe? If some of the Jewish nation have abused their privileges and acted contrary to their obligations, shall their wickedness annul the promise which God made to Abraham that he would by an everlasting covenant be a God to them and to his seed after him? Shall God, therefore, by stripping the Jews of their particular honor, as they intimate he will, falsify his promise to the nation, because some of the Jews are bad men? So, in other words, this is what Paul is dealing with in most of Romans here. Is In other words, it's like this. The Jews are disobedient. God is saying, I'm taking this from you and giving it to the Gentiles. Is God being unfaithful? Is God breaking covenant? Is God not honoring his promise to Abraham? That's what the question is. That's what Paul is dealing with right here. Because obviously when you write that, that the gospel is going forth to the Gentiles now, and God has, has blinded the Jews, 
What about the promises that God made to the Jews in the Old Covenant? What about the promise that God made to Abraham? So hey, what does he do? He does what any good exegete or uh, preacher should do or just an, any person dealing with philosophy or anything anticipate their argument before they even have the argument. He had, writes it down in writing. What then? What if some did not believe? Is God then unfaithful? So if the Jews weren't obedient and disregarded the word of God in their lives, God could not now fulfill his promise to Abraham? That's the question, right? Their disobedience prevented God from being faithful? That's the question, right? That's the question that Paul, Paul poses right there. But we know the answer, do we not? Paul says it in verse 4. God forbid. But before we go to verse 4, let's see how this plays out. Turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee, and it sh in thee shall all the earth be blessed. In thee shall all the earth be blessed. Then what did God say to him? He said, I will make of thee a great nation. And make thy name great. Turn, I, sh I shouldn't close that. Turn just up to chapter 13. 13 verse 14. In Genesis. Yeah. Fourteen through sixteen. It says, And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, Lift up thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it to thee, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Who, you want to come outside with me after service? Start counting the dust of the earth. We can go right out here. There's a whole bunch of it. We need to start counting one by one. Uh, I'll supervise, but y'all can start counting dust one by one. The dust of the earth, right? This is a promise that God made. That's the promise of God. That's the covenant of God. That's the covenant that if God does away with the Jews, all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, you told Abraham this. But it doesn't look like that now, Paul. Right? It doesn't look like that when the Jews are unbelieving and now all of a sudden the gospel is going to a different people. So the question is by Paul, if God promised to Abraham that his seed would be as the dust of the earth, but they are disobedient. This makes the promise of God void now, right? That's really the question. Same, same question, just phrased in a different way. Let's keep going. Genesis chapter 15. I keep on closing it. Genesis 15, verse 5. 
Actually, I'll just let somebody else. Will you read that when you get there, Jason? Genesis 15, 5. 15, 5. Mm-hmm. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. So shall your offspring be. Go outside. Now you might be able to do it out here in, in, in Myrtle. You go outside when it's all bright outside and you look up and you're like, I can see like four stars. But come out to Tabor City where we're at. Let me shut off those lights out there. And you walk outside and that's all you see is stars. And that's only where I'm standing, not on the other side of the earth, right? Name, number the stars. Turn to uh, 22 and verse 17. Genesis 22, 17. Will you read that when you get there? And you go there. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Keep going. What did he say again? His offspring will be as the stars of the sky, right? And that one adds, and to the, like the sand on the seashore. How many stars are there? Does anybody know this answer? I mean, I can ask a lot of questions, and y'all would know the answers to it. But I ask this one simple question. How many stars are there? The number. Nobody knows the number. Some scientist says the average galaxy, the average, the average galaxy has 100 million stars, around 100 million stars, the average galaxy. That our galaxy, the Milky Way, has approximately 1 billion stars. They say approximately and around because they don't know either, right? Or they would say it has this many stars. But they don't know. Because why? Because the number's too great to count. You ever watch some stuff on like outer space and you and they start taking you out and you start seeing, seeing the universe and you're like, it just blows your mind. How much stuff's out there we're on this little tiny pebble called Earth. The number is too great to count all of the stars. And just like I said, who wants to go with me after service when we go down to the beach? We start counting the sand out there. Once again, I'll, I'll help, I'll supervise. Y'all just count one grain of sand at a time. We've all been to the beach, right? You get yourself a handful of sand. How many pieces of sand do you think that one little handful? And he said it's going to be more than the sand on the seashore. Not just a little handful. See, the number's huge. Huge, right? <laughs> I can show you over and over again in the Old Covenant that God promises this. Yet when we get to the New Covenant, now all of a sudden Paul's destroying the Jews. Right? That's what he just did in chapter 2. And he's showing that they were just as guilty as the, the, as the Gentiles. Even though they had the oracles of God. They had the advantage of the oracles of God. They had the word of God. Which included that promise, right? It included Genesis there. Genesis 12 and 15. It, the, what they had included that. Yet they in mass disregarded God's word and rejected the Messiah. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, right? That's the, that's the verse. 
The stone which the builders rejected, right? The same has become head of the corner. So this annuls the promise and covenant of God, right? You know, the, the Jews, they were disobedient. They lost, they broke the covenant. Therefore, God's promise is also broke, right? No. The Jews were disobedient. Therefore, they aren't like the sands of the sea and stars of the sky, right? That's what we see. That's what the argument is. That's what it is, right? That when we look out, and when Paul's writing this, when you look out, the Jews weren't, and believing Jews weren't like the sands of the sea and stars in the sky. So God's a liar then, right? God promised this, but hasn't delivered it. God over-promised and under-delivered. God forbid, right, that, that those words would ever come out of our mouth, being serious. How did God deliver on this promise, though, if the Jews were disobedient? If the Jews were disobedient and God cuts them off, which he did, how has God fulfilled his promise? Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Verse 13. For the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, which if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. It wasn't to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Where's that found? Is it, was it only found in the nation of Israel? Is it just you were born uh, an Israelite and therefore you're part of that covenant? No, turn up to Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. This is the one that, that truly shows this right here. Galatians 3, 28. 29. There, remember, we've been going over this right here a lot. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and, according, and heirs according to the promise. You see that? You see, that it wasn't about Abraham. It was about Christ. Israel wasn't Abraham's seed. Jesus was. And if you don't believe me, you can go up to uh, verse 14 of Galatians right there. It says, That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. What? The blessing of Abraham might come on to the Gentiles. That's not what it sounded like there in Galatians, or Genesis, was it? If you were just to read Genesis, you would think he's talking about Israel. But what does Paul do? He takes it to the Gentiles, to us. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. See this, the Israelites, though disobedient, 
cannot disannul the promise of God because the promise wasn't for them, but it's for those in Christ. Christ was the fulfillment of it. And now today, still God is fulfilled. That, that promise is fulfilled in Christ and it's being played out right now because the kingdom is growing, right? See, I'll say this, this. It doesn't matter what our eschatology is. When we come to verses like this, we must agree on this stuff. He's not doing it by the Jews, though, right? That's what Paul's argument was. The, the Jews came up to a certain point, and I would argue that in 70 AD, God cut them off when he destroyed the temple. That he cut them off, and now the kingdom goes out to the, to the Gentiles and fulfills that promise. So it didn't matter. The Jews were disobedient. It doesn't matter. Because that promise wasn't to the Jews. It was to Christ and those inside Christ. Though we see in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, we see this line of the elect going mainly through Israel, right? This line of the elect goes just through this small nation of Israel, mainly. Now, God did save other ones. We could think of like the Ninevites. God saved uh, the Ninevites, even though Jonah didn't want to go there, right? God made him go there, and he saved a bunch of Gentiles there. But the line of the elect mainly went through Israel, then we get to the New Testament, and we see this like great explosion of salvation, and it's going out to the Gentiles, and we're seeing the gospel spread throughout all the world, right? It's not just through this little tiny nation. But what does he say in the New Testament? He says, you are that nation. You are a holy nation. You are peculiar people. To Gentiles. That's us. To the church. You are the nation. Not this little tiny nation made up of a couple million people, but the world. We see the kingdom. In Daniel chapter 2 it says that, the, that this kingdom is going to start as a small rock. And, it's, and he's talking about in the first century there. Daniel's prophesying of the, the kingdom of God which was going to start as a small rock during the time of the Romans reign. And the, the, this kingdom would explode. It would grow into a great mountain and smash the Roman kingdom. Is that not what happened? We see the kingdom, though it started... We, we know this from, uh, was it Matthew Matthew 17, I believe. We see it start as this little mustard seed, right? This little mustard seed. That's what the kingdom started at. It's in the first century, is this little mustard seed. What did it start as? Twelve men. Then in the upper room, you have 120. And then Peter goes out and starts preaching in thousands and thousands. Now how many Christians are there upon the earth? It started as this little mustard seed and is growing into this great giant tree that all the birds of the air come and flock, flock to, right? That's, that's Bible. I mean, I'm not doing anything but quoting Scripture right there. It also says that the kingdom of God is like leaven placed in a, in, a, in a loaf. And what happened? The leaven expanded and took over the whole loaf. That, that's what I said. It doesn't matter your eschatology. That's what the Bible says. The kingdom of God will consume this world. And it doesn't matter what our eschatology is. We must see that in Scripture. God promised that the descendants of Abraham would be as the sand of the seashore, and no matter of what kind of disobedience, death, and construction, or construction, destruction can prevent that. God said that, right? That the number is going to be greater than the stars. 
And he didn't say that because he thought that we could go out there and say, well, there's going to be one million Christians, two billion Christians. He said that because the number would be so great that we wouldn't even know the number. And actually, it says it in Revelation, right? When we see him standing before the throne, it said a, a number so great that no man could number. And we think this small little remnant's going to just, just make it, by chance, make it to the kingdom. blood of Jesus Christ secured that. That's what it is. That promise to Abraham was to Christ and those in him and he fulfilled that covenant by his blood. And it says, we read it, well we didn't read that verse last week when we looked at Isaiah 53. We stopped the verse short. But it says, he shall listen to this, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Let me ask you this. This is more of a hypothetical question. But you think if he saw the travail of his soul and his portion was this small little remnant and Satan's was this huge kingdom, he would be satisfied? Let me ask you this. Would you be satisfied? Are you satisfied today that if more people are in hell than heaven, does that satisfy any of us? Yeah, do we want to look and go to God in prayer and tell him that we're more righteous and just and holy than he is? You think you'd be satisfied with that? He came to redeem the world, right? The Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. When the Father says to the Son in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thy inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. It means ends of the earth for thy possession. Maybe he just asked for a few, right? You think that's what the Son did? In direct opposition to the covenant made with Abraham? He says, Ask of me, and I'll give you the ends of the earth. And you think Jesus was like, well, I'll just take like one or two million. Let the other ten billion go to hell. That would be in direct opposition. Or did he actually ask for the ends of the earth? The sands of the sea. The stars of the sky. The dirt of the earth. Did he actually ask for that? So... To answer the question to Paul, which he obviously knew, no, the Jews' unbelief cannot thwart the promises of God. God is true, and every man a liar. That's what the next verse is. That's my next point. God is true. So that's the difference between man and God. At least one difference. When God says something is true... When God says something, it's true. When God says something will happen, it will happen. When God said God says something won't happen, it won't happen. We don't do the same, do we? And you can't name one person you know that's always, always does everything they say. Let alone prophesy that things will happen and they actually happen the exact same way that they prophesy. You can't name one today. 
Though with God, it's not really prophecy, right? Since he's simply given, isn't given a word from someone else. That's what prophecy is. It's, it's when God gives you a word that you didn't know beforehand. He give it to, gives it to you and you speak it forth. That doesn't happen with God. He has decreed the end from the beginning. This is how we can say that God is true. He has told us things that come to pass exactly how he said they would. Turn to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, 28. says that saith of Cyrus he is my shepherd and shall perform shall perform all my pleasure even saying to Jerusalem thou shalt be built and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid and in chapter 45 thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked place straight. I will break into pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron, and I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou may knowest that I, the Lord, which called thee by name, am the God of Israel. God named him by name. You know, Cyrus wasn't born yet. God called him by name. This was written 210 years before Cyrus was even born. And God named him by name and said what he was going to do. And then what happened? His mom and dad named him, <laughs> named him Cyrus. If I'd have known about this, I probably wouldn't have tried, I'd have tried everything I could not to name my son Cyrus at that time. Anything but Cyrus. Because God's going to crush him. Matthew Henry says Cyrus is called God's anointed. He was designed and qualified for his great service by the counsel of God. The gates of Babylon, which led to the river, were left open the night that Cyrus marched his army into the empty channel. The Lord went before him, giving entrance to the cities he besieged. He gave him also treasures, which had been hidden in secret places. The true God was to Cyrus an unknown God. Yet God foreknew him. He called him by his name. The exact fulfillment of this must have shown Cyrus that Jehovah was the only true God and that it was for the sake of Israel that he was prospered. In all the changes of states and kingdoms, God works out the good of his church. God said he'd do that between 707 and 686 B.C. And it happened in 539 B.C. Let God be true, right? But all men liars. What about, we'll go, we don't need to go there, but Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is speaking about Christ and his victory over Satan. 
So the question is, did that happen? Of course it did. God said it, and that settles it, right? I know I'm kind of quoting R.C. here, but he used to talk about this bumper sticker that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And he said, that's not a good bumper, bumper sticker. Get rid of the middle line. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. God said it, that settles it. He said it will happen. And we can go to many, many different verses that display this about Christ coming to defeat Satan. And I know many of y'all know it. But let me read this quote to you. Jesus fulfilled 456 prophecies in his life. Now that's it's plus or minus some, but Jesus fulfilled 456 prophecies in his life. The likelihood of a person fulfilling just eight prophecies is, according to mathematicians, like filling the state of Texas. You know how big the state of Texas is? It's like filling the state of Texas two feet deep in dimes. Marking an X on one of them, blindfolding somebody, and then walking out and picking up that dime on the first try. That's just eight prophecies. He fulfilled 456. Now you could argue, well, he knew the Old Covenant, right? He knew the Old Testament. So he could seek out to fulfill those texts, right? You could, you could seek out to make sure that, well, it says this, the Messiah is going to do this, so I'm just going to do it and fulfill that prophecy. However, nobody can fulfill their birth, right? And most likely their death. Especially his death in the way that it happened. It wasn't like he saw, he, he couldn't fulfill those prophecies by himself unless he was God. Being sold for silver, right? Could he, could, could he make that happen? Being crucified, which was a Roman instrument of death. And it was the Jews that wanted him killed. So the Jews wanted him killed, but the Romans were the one that killed him. He had no say-so in that, if he was a God. You see, eight props, just eight. That number just, just blows your mind, doesn't it? It's totally impossible. We could try it, if Texas will let us use their land. But you see, it says, let God be true, and every man alive. And that's in reference to him keeping covenant him doing what he says he's going to do when he says his people are going to be more than the sands of the sea seashore he means it and it will happen when God says something it will happen when he says it will happen my last point here is every man is alive this point's going to be kind of brief but we can practically prove this point. I know there's, there's scriptures that sometimes you, you, you can't prove it practically, even though we know it. But this one we can prove practically, right? You know how many people I've asked? Have you ever told a lie? And you know I've never had one person say no. I'm telling you, it's not like five or ten people. I'm telling you, I've ask that question to hundreds, maybe thousands, and never had one of them say, no, I never told a lie. Maybe you have. I never have. They just being smart, though. 
Yeah. And then I said, that's a lie right there. Well, they may say, no, I never told a lie. And then you say, well, what about this? Yeah, yeah I guess I did lie. Yeah. But they all admit to lying. True. Because everybody knows they've told lies. Everybody knows they've told lies. And they think it's not that big of a deal, right? They call them white lies. As if the color of the lie makes it any different, right? I just told a white lie. I didn't know what a white lie is. I didn't know that lies had colors that went with them. You see, if the Bible wasn't true about the depravity of man, why couldn't just one man or one woman be sinless besides Christ? Not one. How come this never happened outside of Christ, who was the God man? One person should be able to abstain from sin if the Bible wasn't true, right? Just one. Give me one example. Just one out of the billions of people that live. We find the opposite, though, don't we? We find that every single person sins continuously and doesn't care. We justify our sins, too, don't we? Well, we only did this because they did that. So-and-so said this, that's why I did that. That's what we do. And this, Paul is talking about one of the most simple ones, right? Lying. Lying is simple. I mean, you control that, do you not? It's, you have to think about it, and then you have to say it. There's some sins that are in your mind. This one isn't in your mind. It's something that it starts in your mind. You think, I need to lie right now. I need to not tell the truth about this. And then you say it. So you're in control of that. That's one of the easy ones. But every single one of us does it. Let God be true and every man a liar. Every single one of us do it. And we don't just do it once, but we do it many times. Oftentimes, we even lie about lying, as you just mentioned. We lie, and then we make up another lie to get out of the other lie. And some people just make up lies just to simply be lying. I know y'all have met those storytellers. That you, they tell the story, and you know everybody in the room knows you're lying. <laughs> but you still tell them. People are liars by nature. And you know what's crazy about it? We learn this as children. We aren't even taught it. It's something we learn that we're not even taught. Your child will lie to you. And you didn't sit down and have a session with them, right? That, hey, let me, let me show you how to lie. Let me teach you how to lie. We just do it by nature. That's all of us. It's not just, I mean, I was a child that lied. When I say your child was going to lie to you, that's because you did too. Right? We're all guilty of it. Let God be true. But all men liars. So in closing the doctrinal portion here, it says, even though the nation of Israel was apostate, God is not. Even though they were unbelieving, even though they are unfaithful, God is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we believe not, yet he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. What's that mean? That means if I'm in Christ and I'm not believing, God can't cast me out. 
Why? Because he's promised to keep us. And I don't mean I'm unbelieving like I reject the Christian faith, but we all know that there's days that we're just, we're just not really believing the gospel in our actions. But if I were to sit any of us down and say, do you believe the gospel? You would say yes. And I'd say, well, why aren't you acting like it? Well, because I wasn't believing it at that point. I was believing that sin was better than this. But he cannot deny himself. Brethren, God is always faithful. Always faithful. He is a covenant-keeping God, and by no means will he forsake his people. Even though you would forsake him today if he wasn't keeping you. This is why, like the hymn writer says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Because that's how we are. And that's why we sing songs like that. So the application. <clears throat> if God is faithful in saving his people and keeping his people, do you not think he's also faithful in all of his other promises? Do you actually think that the blood of Jesus Christ was spilt for you, he raised for, from the dead for your justification, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he's not going to take care of you? That that's it? Oh, he saved me, he keeps me, that's it? But when God says, we know that all things, right? We know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to the called who, to those who are called according to his purpose, right? All things work together for good. That's even when you're down there in the mire, what you mentioned, in the valley. When you're down in the valley, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with me. All things work together for our good. Do you think that he doesn't keep that promise? He keeps all of his other promises. He'll also he don't he don't keep that promise for you, right? Well, all things work together for most people, but they don't work together for me. But they do. And if they don't, maybe you should check to see if you're in Christ. Because it says to the call according to his purpose. To those that love God. All things work together to, for those that love God. What about this one? Philippians 4.19 he says, But my God shall supply all your needs according to the riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Will God not do this? You think he's going to go from Abraham and tell him, hey, I'm going to make of thee a great nation and your name will be blessed and there will be millions and billions and trillions of believers and you, all of a sudden I'm not going to supply your needs? Can you not look at your life in the past and in the present and see God fulfills his promises? And fulfills this promise that he will supply all of our needs? Does he not do that? And I know oftentimes we question this when we're going through it. When we're in the present, we, we question that. But when we get through whatever it is that we're going through, we see God was faithful the whole time. We, like the Israelites, grumble and complain, right? 
God, have you brought us out of Egypt to die here? God, have you brought me out of whatever sin, muck and mire I was in to die here? No. He shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in or by Christ Jesus. A lot, a lot of times we go through those times and we get through them and we act like we never question them either, do we? Like, you're sitting there grumbling, complaining, and then you get to the other side, like, man, I knew you had me. God, I knew you'd get me through this. Yeah, a month ago, you were crying like a baby and doubting him. But then you get to the other side of the valley and you're back on the mountaintop and you're like, man, I knew God's sovereign. That's one truth that should change us, change us, right? That God is sovereign. Our Lord is in control of all things. There's not an atom in existence that God is not in control of. You ever think about that? You talk about stars? How many more atoms are there? How many atoms are in human? I don't know. I'm not a clue. Are atoms even in humans? I don't know. <laughs> Humans are in that. <laughs> but, but seriously, not one of them. But to quote Spro again, he used to say, there's not one maverick molecule in all the earth, or in all you, the universe. Not one maverick molecule. There's not one molecule that's not doing exactly what God said to do. We can rest in that, right? Does that not give you rest? My God is in control of everything. Not me. He is. Nothing happens apart from the hands of God. And this is how we can say, let God be true in all men's lives. In all men's lives. Because oftentimes we'll say, hey, I'll be there at 5 o'clock, right? And something happens outside of our control, and we don't make it. Or we can say, I'll see you tomorrow and die tonight. That stuff doesn't happen to God. He's sovereign. What he says goes. And nobody, like in what Nebuchadnezzar said, and nobody can stay his hand. Nobody can stop him. This is why we often say, and if we don't say it, we should at least know it and acknowledge it, that Lord willing I do this or do that. Why do we say that? Because God is sovereign, and he keeps his promises. And if he hasn't promised me another tomorrow, I can't say, I'll see you tomorrow, and be confident in that. Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow. If the Lord will, I will see you tomorrow. Why? Because he's sovereign, I'm not. He will provide for us, though, even when you feel he isn't. Sometimes I know we have that. Maybe he isn't providing physically for us right now. But in that, he's probably providing spiritually, which one is more important? He will provide. My second point here is pray to him. Brethren, we know that God has promised certain things to us. But oftentimes, it comes through prayer. He's promised certain things, but oftentimes it comes through prayer. Now you say, but I thought God was sovereign and in control of everything, and why should we pray, right? If God declared the end from the beginning, why pray? It doesn't change nothing. 
first. God commanded us to pray. Don't tell me, oh, I'm Christian, so-and-so, but I'm not going to pray because God's sovereign. Or I'm not going to evangelize because God's sovereign. God's commanded us to do those things. That should be good enough reason to. If God's told us to do it, we should do it. Second, though, is that God, even as the sovereign God of the universe, listens to and uses our prayers. And that should blow our minds. It shouldn't only blow our minds, but it should make us want to pray without ceasing, right? If the sovereign one of the universe listens to and uses prayers, why would we not pray? It says in James 5, 16 and 17, it says, Confess your faults to one another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Elijah was a man of like passions. You know what that means? It means he's like us. He was the same as us. But God stopped the rain for three and a half years. Why? Because he prayed. He doesn't listen to us less now, does he? Does he listen to us any less than what he listened to him in the Old Covenant? Go to him in prayer often for everything. He is sovereign and he listens. And last point. Let your yeas be yeas and your nays be nays. I'm not speaking like horse language. Right? <laughs> In other words, be a man or woman of your word. If you say something, do it. Don't be a person of excuses. You know the person I'm talking about, right? You know the person that you think, they walk around, you know how we have pocket Bibles now? They got a book that they carry in their back pocket that's full of excuses. That every time something comes up, well, hold up. Nah, I ain't gonna make it. I ain't gonna. Always, always an excuse. Don't be that person. If you really have a book like that, go burn it. <laughs> Don't be that person, though. In my job, I deal with this. People have all kinds of excuses not to come to a car dealership. I mean, there's excuses. And I often, I don't do it as much as I probably should. Well, I don't know if I should because sometimes it makes people angry. But I ask, I say, well, if the car was free, would you be able to make it by here today? Yeah? Then what's stopping you? The car is not free, but you just give me you just gave me an excuse why you can't come. But if the car is free, you could come. And you told me you needed a car. But regardless, and now in our world, in our COVID world now, right? Are there not excuses galore? If you just anything that you don't want to do, well, COVID, you know. I don't want to go to church today because somebody might have COVID. I don't want to do this. COVID. I don't want to go to work. <laughs> don't worry. You'll be given $600, $900 a week to sit at home and do nothing. 
Let's not be those people, though, right? Let's our yeas be yay and nays be nays. When we say something, we do it. God's people should be people of the truth. When our mouth opens, it should only be the truth that comes out. Why? Because we wear a badge on our sleeve, right? That says elect of Yahweh, follower of Jesus Christ. Do you want the person looking at you? That's why you see, oftentimes, you see these bumper stickers, these Jesus things, and then this person's going 90 miles an hour in a 45, and you're like, take the bumper sticker off your car. You're not a good representative of Jesus Christ. Or wearing a Christian t-shirt, but you see doing things that they ought not to be doing, maybe don't wear the Christian t-shirt. But that's what we all have. When we are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, we walk around with that badge on us. So be people of the truth. Do what you say you will. And apart from what the world says, there's not white lies, black lies, pink lies. They're just lies. And they're all worthy of death, right? Mm. So let's be people of truth, trusting our loving, sovereign God. And let's go forth with the gospel to the ends of the earth because God has promised to redeem you. Amen. Amen.